Thank you for choosing the podcast of East Haven Baptist Church in Brookhaven, Mississippi. For more information on the ministries of East Haven and to access videos and sermon notes from our services, visit www.easthaven.net. Thank you for praying for me, and I covet each of your prayers. Such a privilege to be here. Our son Josh and his wife Stacy had the occasion on a number of uh, occasions, actually, to travel with a couple of their friends, a couple who uh, they've traveled a lot with. And there's a spot in Puerto Rico that's on the coast there. I've never been to Puerto Rico. I've seen some pictures of this location. It's kind of an Airbnb, beautiful home, craggy rock coastline. This is not uh, even Gulfport, let alone Destin or 30A. This is a craggy, rocky, kind of sharp coast. And Josh and Stacy had a two-person kayak that they put out into the water. The water was fairly calm, and they sort of navigated the coastline for a little while. And the waters began to churn a little more. The wind was whipping up. And as they were near a set of rocks, in between the rocks and the actual coastline, uh, they got swamped, basically. Big wave, and Stacy went over and went into the water, and, and she cut the bottom of her leg just a little bit, and she crawled out, and she crawled up on these uh, sharp rocks that were out in the ocean as the waves are churning now. Josh has this two-person kayak, and Stacy's up on the rocks, and she's got some blood course, I'm thinking shark. That's what I'm thinking. Stacy says, Josh, Josh, come help me. Back, come back, back up the kayak. Josh is in these waves going, back up the kayak. You know, this is not a Ford Explorer. This is a kayak. So he said, eventually, you know, he backed up and Stacy made kind of a, a jump forward. It wasn't high or far in particular, but the waves were pretty pretty worked up and Josh was able to grab her and she negotiated the kayak and got back on and they got back safely. And I heard Josh talk about this once to an audience and he said, you know, a lot of us believe that God's function in our life is a little bit of help me out. I'm broken and I'm bleeding and I need a handout so that I can get back where I was and, and do okay and be okay. And then Josh said, I thought quite eloquently, the reality is without Christ, you're not bloody and broken on a rock looking for rescue. You're on the bottom of the coldest darkest ocean floor, devoid of life entirely, as dead as you can be. That's actually where we are spiritually without Christ. We're not looking for help to have a productive life or to live our best life. We are dead apart from Christ. So when I'm over here and I'm, I'm singing with this incredible worship team and these incredible worship leaders at the front as well as the choir and the band, and we're singing awesome wonder, awestruck wonder, I'm reminded that if I knew how dead I was apart from Christ, if I realized the price that God the Father paid in the person of Jesus Christ on my behalf, my response would be awestruck wonder. 
It might be, if I really understood, it might be falling on my face. It might be being quiet. It might be seated in my seat here or at home, contemplating the depths of God's love for me. Earlier, we sang about dancing. I looked around. That was funnier than you laughed. We, we, we danced and sang hallelujah. We did pretty good on the hallelujah part. The dancing was just a little light in here. I don't know if you noticed. Now, I'm Baptist. Maybe I'm a little too Baptist. Um, I, this, is, this is going out online, so I'm probably in trouble. But somebody said the other day, the reason Baptists are against premarital fooling around is it might lead to dancing. You're welcome. Uh, I'm the interim. You're not, you know, I won't be here forever. I'm not much of a dancer. Just, just to be clear, you're, you're not either. I looked around. If we knew the grace of God, sometimes it would cause us to dance. I'm just going to confess even before my wife. Sometimes alone at the house, I put on one of those old Christian albums that I love that speak to who I know God is and what he's done at a season of time in my life. And I don't exactly dance, but I, I do move a little more than you did this morning. Yeah, that's the natural response of our heart. It is, it is to dance. And, and I don't have a Pentecostal agenda. The first time one of you gets up and runs around this room, we're shutting this thing down. Although that might be refreshing. If we knew the grace of God, if we understood how desperate we were for him, we might just run around the room. If we knew we were on the bottom of the ocean devoid of life in the coldest, darkest, loneliest place in the world apart from Christ, it might move us to awestruck wonder. My wife, Kathy, is with me this morning. She's, as I've mentioned to you if you've been here, she's back and forth between Pine Lake, where she serves on the worship team, and being with me, kind of covering the home front and supporting me, and she's awesome. She's a part of a team of teachers who do theater at Madison Middle School, and it's a big production, 140 kids doing The Wizard of Oz. Oh, my goodness, our house is just full of Amazon boxes, as I think I may have told you. It's just, it's just pretty crazy. They have themes at the middle school occasionally. Days when kids learn something about a particular time or a particular theme. So they used to do Pioneer Living Day. And they'd let these 12, 13, and 14-year-olds, like 1,500 of them, go outside. And they would do things like cook pancakes, the way pioneers cooked pancakes. I don't know how ultimately helpful that really is. But it seemed like a good day if you're a middle school kid. One year, they decided to to uh, serve as their theme, the Titanic, why you would choose a ship who had the loss of 3,000 souls to be your middle school theme for your day, I don't know. But they wanted them to learn some things that might have been true of that era in time. So they said, let's teach them to ballroom dance. There are 1,500 middle school kids we're teaching to ballroom dance. My wife has the assignment, go to a dance studio and let's find somebody who can come and teach our kids how to waltz. So you know who had to go, right? 
And then we danced in front of a middle school. I've never been so humiliated in my life. And I've been pretty humiliated before. But we, we danced, and it turned out I don't have the gift. So when we break into dancing, you dance, I'll run around, and I'll meet you right here. If we knew how deep our sin was and how great God's grace was, it would probably change our reaction. Last week, we started a series in Romans, and I reminded you that pastors preach in different ways, topically, expositionally, which fundamentally means to expose the Scripture exegetically. That's kind of taking apart and uh, revealing again the Scripture. And some pastors, I would suggest, will do all of those from time to time, Uh, not just book studies, but occasionally topical studies that they believe the Lord has given them that makes sense for the people that they shepherd. We started a really a book study of the high points, the big picture of the book of Romans last week, and this is where we started. We started by saying uh, Paul had a relationship with these people in that he wanted to go to Rome and did not get there, but he had a relationship with several, obviously, he wrote from Corinth to the church, said, I long to get to you. We said that uh, Paul had a love for the church at Rome. He saw their faithfulness, and he knew that Rome was a center stop on the way virtually to every place in the known Western world. You've probably heard the line, all roads lead to Rome. Uh, Paul's love for the gospel Uh, Verse 16 of the first chapter that I've quoted at least three different weeks. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God to salvation for all who believe, first to the Jew and then the Gentile. And that covers everybody. And Paul, as a rabbi, had a particular voice to the Jews that he was bringing along to say the Messiah has come and the Savior is for everyone. We said men are without excuse. Uh, Paul writes and he says... Uh, Because of God's divine attributes and nature, men know that there is a creator and yet we created, speaking of man, we've created images, idols in the shape of men and animals and things that we've worshipped instead of the creator. We have worshipped the created instead of the creator. But because we've had this testimony of God's divine nature and power, we're without excuse. So whatever you may think about, uh, what about who hasn't heard, what about not knowing, man has a, a testimony of God's presence and his love and his grace by his nature and his divine power. And then God has judgment because he's a righteous God. And if there is a word that I'd like for you to remember this morning, it's righteousness. It is right standing. It's uprightness. It is a standard, literally. God has this righteousness out of his character. And we see ourselves judged against this righteousness as being needy. We're on the bottom of the ocean again. And then, in Paul's rabbinical argument here, he's saying, but many of us will judge other people, but we're all in the the same place, and when we do not place grace or mercy on others, when we don't do for others in our heart what God's done for us, it's something of contempt for God's grace. And he says, do you not know that it's God's, this is huge, talked about it last week, that it's God's kindness 
that leads us to repentance. It's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. This morning, if you have an outline, it'll, it'll help you. We're, we're studying the Word, and we're looking at a lot of God's Word in these times together. And the outline is broad brush because we're looking at the big picture. Uh, first point this morning is God's standard of righteousness for the Jew and Gentile. Chapter 2, beginning in verse 5. So I'm going to read, again, not apologizing for reading God's Word, but I know as a presenter, as a preacher, that it's a lot of content. Also, in Paul's style and in the translation of Greek to English, these sentences sometimes can become long and, in our English syntax, a little cumbersome. So we kind of have to lock in here. If you'll allow me to read Romans 2, 5 through 28. But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. God will repay each person according to what they have done. Romans 2, 6. To those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. There will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. But glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does good First for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For God does not show favoritism. All who sin apart from the law will also perish apart from the law. And all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, but it is those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. Indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature things required by the law, they are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law. We're going to stop right there for a moment, and we'll catch up. They do not have the law. Paul is a rabbi, and he's got a sophisticated, what we call a rabbinical argument here, as he's presenting to two groups of people at the Church of Rome the truth of the gospel. And in this passage, and remember, it's a, it's a complete letter, and we're moving into the third chapter in just a moment uh, more deeply. But what Paul's saying is, whatever standard you want to look to, to declare yourself or to consider yourself righteous, you will be judged by that standard. So for the Jew, it was the law. And Jews knew the law, and they knew that the law reflected God's character. And I'm going to do that for you in just a moment. But for the Gentiles, the Gentiles, he's already said, they've had an expression of God's faithfulness and his divine nature, who God is. So in whatever standard they choose, they have violated that standard as well. To put it in plain English, no matter what your standard, you're not perfect, Everybody got that? No matter what your standard, you're not perfect. The Jews had a covenant relationship with God, a 
chosen relationship with God, a favored relationship with God, and they had been given the privilege of the law to show them how to live, but also to be a teacher or a tutor for them, to teach them how far away from the law they really were. And Jesus, thinking Matthew 15 and other places, talks about the law and about men's hearts. Now, the very first time I think that I preached at East Haven, I think I taught the Ten Commandments, if I'm not mistaken. For the sake of review for some and brand new for others, I'm going to do that this morning to talk about the law for just a minute. So, we're going to just break out of our shell and have fun for about three minutes. Are you okay with that? If this goes well, we're going to dance. Okay, I'm... I'm pushing my luck now. I I know how it is. And by the way, all my friends in the back row, as soon as we started dancing, I know all of you guys, you head right out those doors. I could feel it. I've become buddies with the back rows here. You know, they're the powerful people at the Baptist church. You realize this. They get in the parking lot about 815 and they stake out these chairs. I love these people. I really do love these people. You could all relax, okay? I'm not making fun of them. I've gotten to know them and they're fantastic But, you know, they're not dancing with you. Matter of fact, I'm looking at you. None of you are dancing, really, are you? We're going to learn the Ten Commandments, and I'm going to make a point about the Jews and God's law as it applies to Romans 1, 2, and 3 this morning. Uh, You may remember this. Some of you, that might have been all you remembered from the last time I was here, uh, early on the first time I was here. It's multimodal learning. In other words, we're going to use our hands to learn. So if you have something in your hands, set it down. I want you to hold your hands up like this. By the way, you do know this is not TV, and I can see you, so hold your hands up. Thank you. Hold your hands way up. I always say it, welcome to First Assembly of God. Okay, I'm sorry, it's it's an old joke. Just hold up one. Let's just do this. Number one, I'm going to teach you the Ten Commandments in three minutes. Ready? Say this with me. God's number one. Say it. God's number one. That was pitiful. Let's do that again. God's number one. That was fantastic. God's number one, have no gods before me. That's the first commandment. Two, take a two. Make scissors out of your two and cut out idols. Cut out idols. Get it? Cut out idols. Say it with me. Cut out idols. Have no idols, have no graven images. Number three, what letter does this look like? A W. A W. I was at a university one time. I won't mention the university, but it was Bellhaven. And I said, what, what letter does this look like? And some very confident kid in the front said, E. And this is not an E. This is a W. Think this phrase, watch your words. Say it with me. Watch your words. Let's do that again. Watch your words. Don't misuse God's name. Don't take God's name in vain. That's three. Four. Father, mother, big brother, little sister, and a four-door, four-wheel drive, four-runner going to church. Got it? Okay, let's just keep it simple. Four people in a car going to church. Do it with me. Four people in a car going to church. Remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. Here's an aside for just a moment. The Sabbath is not simply about going to church. Okay? You've been served. What is it, though? Four people in a car Again, not pitiful, but not strong. Do it with me. Four people in the car, going to church. Much better. Five, put your hand together and salute. Honor your father and mother. 
salute. Honor your father and mother. Got it? Here's number six. Do not do this. This is weird. Do this. For those of you who are tech savvy, this is more of an emoji these days. Do this. Ready? One of my favorite commandments. Bang, don't kill. Everybody got it? Bang, don't kill. Say it with me. Bang, don't kill. You got it. Here's the PG-13 commandment. Remember, I did not write these. Don't hold me responsible. Seven people at a party. Hold up seven. Two run off and commit adultery. Don't do that. Do not commit adultery. If you wonder what adultery is, talk to your mom and dad. Seven people to party. Two run off and commit adultery. Do not do that. Number eight. If you remember when I was here three, four years ago and did this. This is way too far to go for a commandment prompt, but just work with me for a minute. If you were in the Middle East and you were shopping for groceries and you were at Piggly Wiggly, see, I think that's hilarious about Piggly Wiggly in the Middle East, that some of you will get in the car, you're going to be on the way to the Mexican restaurant, you're going to go, oh, Pigs in the Middle East. I get it now. You'll you'll get it later. And by the way, I heard you last week. My wife corrected me. You have a Sullivan's, right? But you do not have a Piggly Wiggly. And you call yourself Mississippians. Brookhaven. All right. Number eight. Watch this. You're in the Middle East. You're in the Piggly Wiggly. You have the cart. You know the cart that's got three wheels that go with you and the one that always goes someplace else? You all have that cart? And you're in the produce section and, and you think to yourself, you know what happens when a, somebody steals something? What happens in the Middle East? They cut your hand off. And there's not a lot of stealing in the Middle East, by the way. Not a lot of grace, not a lot of stealing. They cut your hand off, but you're in Piggly Wiggly. You're in the cart. You look over in the produce department. You see some green grapes, and you say to yourself, I wonder if those are sweet. So you just look around and take one grape, but they catch you. Maybe for one grape, they wouldn't cut your hand off. Maybe they just cut your little finger off. covered up so you don't bleed to death. Number eight is do not steal. Okay, that's, that's ridiculous. I've got to admit You're going to go to lunch today and you're going to talk about this one. You're going to say that was a waste of time. Number eight, what is it? Do not steal. Number nine, when Pinocchio lied, what happened? His nose grew back when you lied. Number eight grows back. Do not lie or don't bear false witness. And number 10, take both hands and reach for something like you really want it. (gasps) Don't covet. So let's do a review. Number one, God's what? Number one, have no gods before me. Two, cut out idols. Excellent. Three, watch your words. Don't misuse God's name. Don't take his name in vain. Number four, four people in a car going to church. Five, excellent. Six, people. I'm giving you a chance. You're in church. Here we go. Ready? Bang, don't kill. Excellent. Seven, seven people to party. To run off and commit adultery, don't do that. Number eight, don't steal. They'll cut your little finger off. Number nine, don't lie. It'll grow back like Pinocchio. Number 10, reach for something, don't covet. Now, why do I do the Ten Commandments so that you can remember them? Because the Ten Commandments reflect God's character. Paul is making a strong argument here that the standard of the law 
would have to be realized and obeyed in order for righteousness to come. And what it sounds like so far in the passage is that if you're really, really good, you can get righteous enough by the law. Or if you don't have the law and you get really, really good, you'll be okay. But here's the standard. The standard isn't simply the legalist side of the Ten Commandments. It's that the Ten Commandments reflect God's character. And if you remember from the time before that I've taught this, I always say this. These are precepts to live by. And they come out of principle that reflect God's personhood or his character. Precept, principle, personhood. So, when God says, do not kill, that is a precept that comes out of a principle which is God values life. Life is important to him. Why? Because he is life. He's the essence of life. Think of the scripture. He's the way, the truth, and the life, the resurrection and the life, the giver of life. So you don't kill, precept, because he values life. That's the principle. Life's important out of his personhood because he is the source of life. He embodies life. And what has happened is we all know that Jesus himself encountered Pharisees and legalists who said, well, I've never killed, but I've committed murder in my heart because I've hated in my heart. Our heart condemns us. We're going to continue uh, where we left off. They show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their consciences also bearing witness, and their thoughts sometimes accusing them and at other times even defending them. This will take place on the day when God judges people's secrets through Jesus Christ as my gospel declares. Now you, if you call yourself a Jew, if you rely on the law and boast in God, if you know his will and approve of what is superior because you are instructed by the law, if you are convinced that you are a guide for the blind, a light for those who are in the dark, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of little children, because you have in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then, who teach others, do you not teach yourself? You who preach against stealing, do you steal? You say that people should not commit adultery. Do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? As it is written, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Circumcision has value if you observe the law, but if you break the law, you have become as though you had not been circumcised. So then, if those who are not circumcised keep the law's requirements, will they not be regarded as though they were circumcised? The one who is not circumcised physically and yet obeys the law will condemn you who, even though you have had the written code and circumcision, are a lawbreaker. A person is not a Jew who is one only outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. This passage, which again is complex and a little thorny, is saying essentially this, if I can elevate scripture and, and with care try to distill this for us for the sake of this morning and the high points of Romans, is this. If you're a Jew and you've had the law, 
and the law has reflected God, then that's the standard by which you must live. And Paul's writing as a rabbi, and he's saying, but haven't you murdered, or haven't you committed adultery, haven't you robbed? Well, yes. And the Gentile, even if they build in them a law or a system that reflects God's character, would they be judged by the same standards? And the truth is, absolutely. We're all judged by the same standards. In uh, the third chapter of Romans, beginning in verse 1, uh, Paul writes and he says this. He says, what ad- let's do this. What advantage then is there in being a Jew? Or what value is there in circumcision? Much in every way. First of all, the Jews have been entrusted with the very words of God. What if some were unfaithful? Will their unfaithfulness nullify God's faithfulness? Not at all. Let God be true and every human being a liar. As it is written, so that you may be proved right when you speak and prevail when you judge. But if our unrighteousness brings out God's righteousness more clearly, what shall we say? That God is unjust in bringing his wrath on us? For I'm using a human argument. Certainly not. If that were so, how could God judge the world? Someone might argue, if my falsehood enhances God's truthfulness and so increases his glory, why am I still condemned as a sinner? Why not say, as some slanderously claim that we say, let us do evil that good may result, their condemnation is just. This is a theme that Paul returns to in the epistles. And it looks kind of like this. If I sin, it elevates God's glory and his grace. And there's some reasonable, small argument to that in that we have been called by many as believers, trophies of God's grace. God extends to us his love and his grace just because he chooses to. So the theory really is, so if I sin and God extends his grace to us, am I not a trophy of his grace? Am I not showing glory back to God for his goodness? And Paul is writing even here to the church at Rome and saying, it should never happen. It should never happen. It's slanderous that we would think if I'm sinful, it just makes God look that much better. It's a convoluted argument built out of a depraved human heart. Man's problem is sin and death. Beginning in the ninth verse of this third chapter, Paul writes, he says, What shall we conclude then? Do we have any advantage? He's really talking about Jews. Not at all. For we have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are under the power of sin. As it is written, there is no one righteous not even one. Let's stop right there. There is no one righteous, not even one. Paul is is referencing this passage that every Jew would know to say no matter what standard you think you're living by, like you're working really hard to be a legalist, or for the Gentile who has lived a pagan life unto themselves, whatever the standard, there's no one righteous, not even one. Verse 11. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God on their own. All have turned away. They have, become to, they have together become worthless. 
There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. And, they know, and the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. It's God's standard. And it's, it's our problem. We have sin and death made obvious and available to us through the standard of the law. So no matter how we work through the precepts, the principle and the personhood of God becomes violated because our hearts offend God. Because we live unto ourselves, dead in our sin. God's solution is faith. Beginning in verse 21. And you know this passage. But now apart from the law... The righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. That's Jesus. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Where then is boasting? It is excluded. Because of what law? The law that requires works? No, because of a law that requires faith. For we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles too? Yes, of of Gentiles too. Since there is only one God who will justify the circumcised by faith, and the uncircumcised through that same faith. Here's the lesson for today and where I would want to land today, believing that it will honor the Lord so, so powerfully today. In God's Word, Paul is making, again, little complicated sentences here, but Paul's making the case that whether you're Jew and you're a law keeper or a law pursuer, or you're a Gentile, and by your own standard, you're trying to do what's right in your own eyes, that all of us lack righteousness, that our hearts condemn us. And there's no decided advantage to be Jewish than there is to be Gentile because our hearts are the same. For all have sinned, the Bible says, and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. We are justified freely by the redemption that came 
through Christ Jesus. When we left last Sunday morning, for those of you who were here, we got to the, I believe it's the fourth verse of the second chapter, and in this picture of the futility of people's thinking and the evidence of God's divine nature and attributes, we're reminded that it's his kindness that leads us to repentance. And today, we recognize we're all in the same boat. We're on our own little kayak. And we might think that, you know, we we need to live a better life. But we're dead in our sin. We're dead in our trespasses. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And we know more than just this passage, most of us in the room. For the wages of sin is death. But God justifies us. It's an act of his redemption for his glory. So today when you leave this place, I pray you'd be reminded of God's graciousness and his justification of you so that you would have a righteousness that you receive by faith. You receive God's righteousness by faith. It's by faith and faith alone. It's not of works. Works are dead. It is faith that allows us to receive God's righteousness for us. One of the reasons we gather is to hear God's word. And I'm aware, so you know that I'm aware, that I wouldn't normally read a chapter out loud. I'm aware of that. But part of the reason we gather is to spend time in God's word and to examine our lives by the presence and the work of the Holy Spirit in us against this matrix, this this template of God's word that reflects God's character. We're just as lost as we can be without Jesus. All of us. Doesn't matter what family we're in or what tradition we've lived in. Doesn't matter how good we are or benevolent we are. It doesn't make a difference whether we happen to be Jewish, most of us would not be, or Gentile, most of us are. We live by a standard that we cannot achieve, but we're justified and made righteous through Christ by faith. One of the reasons we gather is to be encouraged in these times where we sit kind of facing the front, but also when we walk out these doors and we sit in Sunday school classes and we participate in Bible studies and small group, even if we participate next weekend by coming to truck or treat and we invite friends and we connect, that's an expression of obedience and love within the body. It's important to have a church. It's important to have people wrapped around us. We're going to offer an invitation now. The invitation, the opportunity to respond is about connecting, first of all, to Christ if you've never trusted him and surrendered your life. And number two, if you don't have a church, just keeping it real, if you don't have a church, you need a church. You need a place where you live life with people who love Jesus, who encourage and build up and teach and celebrate and worship together. I'm going to pray. Our worship team will come. We're going to sing about two verses of something unless somebody comes. So I'm praying for boldness. If you need to be a part of what God's doing at East Haven, if you want to join these incredible people around you, we would invite you to come and be a part of East Haven this morning. Allow me to pray for us. Let's pray. Father, I'm so grateful for your grace. 
And God, I'm grateful that you extend to us a righteousness that we receive by faith. So in faith, we ask you this morning, Father, to do what only you can do in the lives of each person in this room, including me, in my heart and the heart of others. Lead us to the next step of obedience. Encourage us as we uh, worship you and as we're a part of the body of Christ. Father, give us boldness. For those of us who have made decisions that would have been public but privately today, God, we may need a special touch from you, uh, an awareness, a sense of calm or peace, comfort or hope. And God, I pray for each person in this room that whatever we need that you would bring for the praise of your glory. So right now, God, I pray courage and boldness and also worship and calmness on each of us in these moments of response. We love you. We ask you to do what you will do and only you will do in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You come.